Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Episode 191. Nirvana released Smells Like Teen Spirit in 1991. R.E.M., my favorite band in college, released Losing My Religion in the same year. The Silence of the Lambs premiered at the same time. People born in 1991, Ed Sheeran, Travis Scott, and Tyler the creator, no joke, one night I had a vision that I was on stage with R.E.M. performing Losing My Religion. But that was just a dream. Just a dream. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 191st episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, we're sharing a rerun of one of our favorite interviews. I don't like rerun. Previously owned, previously listened, recycled, whatever. Greatest hits of one of our favorite interviews featuring Professor Eshwar Prasad. Eshwar is the Talani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University and author of The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies, and finance. We spoke to Professor Prasad back in April, where he shared his thoughts on the state of play regarding the global financial ecosystem, the role of the U.S. dollar, and the opportunities and risks of decentralized finance. DeFi. Here's our discussion. Eastwar, where does this podcast find you? I'm in Washington, D.C., Scott. Nice. So let's bust right into it. We came across your research after we were introduced to your latest book, The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. So let's start there. How would you describe the current state of play and the future of the financial system, uh, specifically in the United States? So things are changing fast, Scott. In particular, the use of cash, that is physical currency, is fast disappearing. And we're all moving into digital forms of payments. But the reality is that the U.S. is pretty far behind much of the rest of the world when it comes to digital payments. In countries like China and Sweden, the future is already here. Hardly anybody uses cash anymore. Um, in the U.S., we still use cash to a significant extent, and we use um, credit cards and other modes of payment that are not used that widely in the rest of the world. Low-cost, efficient digital payments are really becoming the norm much faster around the world. So the U.S. is really playing catch up. 
And what, what what's the net effect other than a lack of innovation? It feels like our our fintech firms are as valuable as anyone's in the world. Or I would be, uh, I think the market cap of our fintech firms is is pretty formidable. What's the net effect of the fact that we are lagging the rest of the world? So it means that we have a significant part of the U.S. population, not a huge amount, but it's a non-trivial part that is locked out of easy access to the financial system. So you and I can use um, Apple Pay or Google Pay, but we have to have that connected to a bank account or a credit card. And about 5% of households in the U.S. are still unbanked or underbanked, so they don't have easy access to low-cost digital payments. And they also don't have easy access to um, banking services, you know, even basic products for managing savings, risk, credit, and so forth. Now, fintech platforms um, are beginning to fill in that hole. They're also providing more direct channels for savers and borrowers to be connected. Um, but here, too, I think the rest of the world, including even an economy like China, has quite a few steps ahead of where the U.S. is right now in terms of this evolution. Why has the adoption not been faster? Is it regulation? Is it consumer uh, misunderstanding? Why are we behind? So to some extent, it's because in the rest of the world, um, there was a real dearth of uh, easy access to digital payment systems and also a regulatory void that was filled by payment giants. If you think about China, uh, um, WeChat Pay and Alipay filled in that void because China had a rising middle class that demanded better payments, um, and the government sort of stepped aside. Here in the US, we have big players who are very eager to protect their territory. So for instance, the interchange fees that um, merchants pay on credit card transactions are far higher in North America than anywhere else in the rest of the world. Um, and the reason is because um, credit card companies have been very smart. First of all, they have used their revenues essentially to buy off the politicians um, and keep regulations in their favor. And then, of course, they bribe us by essentially making it worthwhile for us to use credit cards for transactions because we get money back, we get points back. Um, and so, uh, at least in North America, um, credit card companies have figured out how to maintain their market power, which has been very quickly eroding for them in the rest of the world. Who are the biggest losers when fintech and digital payments get the traction, uh, the same level of traction that they've achieved overseas? Who are the big losers domestically? Is it the credit card companies? Is it the banks? Who is it? Is it the central bank? Who loses here? So it's the entire financial architecture, the traditional financial architecture that gets um, threatened. Now, we've certainly seen the biggest disruptions coming in both domestic and international payments, where there are huge inefficiencies, especially in the U.S., but then you can think about even the traditional functions of a banking system, you know, matching savers and uh, borrowers of those funds, uh, being essentially disintermediated, that is having their lunch eaten by um, some of these fintech platforms that are able to provide services at much lower cost, at scale, and with perhaps greater efficiencies. So I think there are different pillars of the traditional financial institutions, starting with the payment providers, but especially the commercial banks that see serious threats to their uh, business models. What do you think of Visa? It just strikes me that Visa and MasterCard feel vulnerable, and yet they continue to be, they appear to be bulletproof. What about the, what about the credit card companies? 
they face what I view as existential threats because it's really not a viable business model they have um, to provide payments uh, um, with such large um, fees being charged. You know, in um, China, again, which I keep bringing up as, a, as an example, you can literally um, use digital payments to buy a piece of fruit or a dumpling on the street because the costs of transacting are so low. The same is true in other countries like um, India and uh, even advanced economies like um, Sweden. Uh, so it's hard to imagine that this sort of competition won't start um, eating away at the market share of Visa and MasterCard. But again, these are companies that have a lot of lot at stake and they've used um, the regulatory structure to uh, their advantage. But that advantage is not going to last that much longer. And what about the USD? We talk about the idea of a digital currency or a digital coin, an eagle coin or something. Do you think that that's a do you think that's going to happen in the U.S.? I know that uh, the Fed or the U.S. government's been talking about it. Where, 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 and how do you think that plays out? So this is the reality that central banks around the world are facing: that the use of cash is disappearing. So they have to figure out if there is a way to keep their physical their currency um, viable, if not in physical form, in digital form. So countries like China and Sweden have already initiated central bank digital currency or CBDC experiments. The Fed has been somewhat more um, cautious about it, partly because it doesn't want to move forward with any haste because it doesn't need to. The US dollar still remains the dominant currency by far, and it's not going to be threatened by cryptocurrencies or other countries' digital currencies. But having said that, the Fed is also bowing to the reality that if it wants its money to remain relevant at the retail level, it's going to have to be digital. And there are also some advantages to having a central bank digital currency. Essentially, it would provide a very low-cost digital payment system that everybody has access to. Um, it could also act as a portal for basic banking products and services that could be provided at very low cost. But there are some costs as well. Um, you could end up in a world where if the government or a central bank is providing a payment system, it could be difficult to have private sector um, payment providers compete with the government agency, which of course is very deep pockets. It could also mean uh, threatening the banking system and of course, it is going to mean a significant threat to our privacy. Um, you know, the one big advantage of cash is that you can conduct transactions, um, which may be, you know, illicit transactions or illicit transactions, but you have privacy. But the notion that we may move to a world where you cannot um, uh, buy a cup of coffee without either um, a private payments provider or the central bank knowing about it is certainly um, something that we need to think hard about. I've always thought that similar to, I'm getting on a flight this afternoon, I always thought our invisible infrastructure is our airways and that people don't appreciate the infrastructure that is our skies. And at the same time, I've always thought the U.S. dollar was the most powerful aircraft carrier squadron that we don't talk about, that our ability to track the payment of capital or track the flows of capital give our sanctions real teeth. And that every day, if we're about 20 or 25 percent of the world's GDP, but we're two-thirds of the world's reserve currencies, we have a disproportionate amount of power vis-a-vis -vis the USD. Does any of this threaten the USD and that soft power? It's going to um, be something under threat, but not a huge amount. And here is where there are going to be some changes coming. 
Um, and these changes are already underway, but certainly what we've seen happen in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is going to accelerate these changes. The reality is that the U.S. dollar's role as a payment currency is going to decline because we now have countries like China that are setting up their payment systems that can more directly communicate with the payment systems of other countries. So you don't necessarily need to go through the dollar as an intermediary currency. But even if the dollar's role as a payment currency declines, um, a reserve currency has very different attributes. So a reserve currency is essentially one that is held as a store of value where foreign central banks hold their rainy day funds, so to speak, um, in assets denominated in that currency. And for that, you need financial markets that are very deep and very liquid, meaning where you can easily buy or sell huge amounts of those uh, um, assets. Um, you also need um, uh, some important elements of an institutional framework that is foreign investors, including foreign central banks, need to be able to trust the issuer of those um, assets. And the US has a very powerful institutional framework, you know, an independent central bank, the rule of law, an institutionalized system of checks and balances. So if you add that up with the size of the US economy and the depth and liquidity of its financial markets, I don't see a serious threat to the US dollar's role as a reserve currency. But certainly, the decline in the dollar's role as a payment currency is going to mean that in the future, um, sanctions, which the US has been very uh, able to very effectively enforce, um, are going to become somewhat less potent. And so we have an entire generation of people who aren't as worried about privacy, as far as I can tell, aren't as worried about hacks um, and feel very comfortable paying for stuff. I've always thought that privacy, there's some consumer dissonance, that people talk a big game about privacy and then they take selfies of themselves and announce where they are via GPS or via Uber. It seems to me that privacy is something that for people over the age of 50 in Brussels or D.C., are the benefits, are the upside of the government being able to track illicit activity, do those outweigh the violation of privacy? I know this is a more of an existential conversation here, but will we end up with the – just as some people have burner phones, do you think we'll end up with burner digital currency that can't be leaked back to an individual? What do you think wins out here? Utility and government protocols, which are important for the emergence and health of any market – or privacy? Because so far, it strikes me that privacy is losing in almost every, in terms of consumer behavior. Yeah, this seems to be a generational thing, Scott. Um, I care about my privacy. My um, uh, adolescent kids don't seem to have any expectation uh, of privacy. They're perfectly comfortable, as you pointed out, being tracked um, all the time. In fact, seem to uh, relish that uh, prospect to some extent. Now, I think um, even for those who value privacy and confidentiality in their financial lives, the convenience of digital payments is going to win over. Because from the point of view of consumers, you know, it's very easy to use digital payments with the swipe of a phone for businesses not having to deal with the hassle of handling cash and having it be vulnerable to loss and theft is a benefit. And for governments, it's a boon because it means that central bank money cannot easily be used for illicit activities such as drug trafficking and terrorism financing. It also brings a lot of economic activity out of the shadows and into the tax net. So I think for consumers, businesses and governments, the advantages are significant enough that we are all going to bow to the reality of digital payments. But having said that, the interesting thing is that technology 
um, while it might lead us to some dark places, is also giving us potentially a way of resolving some of these contradictions. So for instance, China is moving forward with the central bank digital currency, but the Chinese central bank is introducing what are called low-grade digital wallets, where essentially users can still maintain some degree of transactional privacy, but you can use those digital wallets only for low value transactions or to hold small balances. So the idea is if you want to use government issued money for larger transactions or to maintain large balances, you have to identify yourself, you have to meet, know your customer requirements and so on. But perhaps there is a way, if you just want to buy a cup of coffee using a digital uh, payment system provided by the government, you can still maintain some degree of privacy. So uh, let's talk specifically, uh, when we talk about fintech, it encompasses so many things. Let's talk about Web3, uh, tokens, uh, NFTs, and DAOs. I'd love to just get your top line on what you think the prospect is for each of those three sectors and, and more broadly, Web3. So the aspect of Web3 that I find particularly appealing links up with one element of cryptocurrency-related technology, which is the notion of decentralized finance, the notion that you might be able to build new products um, on decentralized blockchains. Now, Web3 does not necessarily line up well with the notion of decentralized finance, because um, after all, at least um, uh, some elements of the metaverse, you would have centralized um, control. Um, but here again, the notion of um, undertaking you know, a lot of activities in the virtual um, sphere certainly does have some appeal, but whether it is going to connect to real life in a way that is tangibly going to have, um, you know, either major benefits or deleterious consequences is still not entirely obvious to me. Um, so, you know, I, between Web3 and things like um, um, NFTs and other uh, products being purveyed on uh, blockchains, there is certainly a bit of an intersection, um, but I think these two will proceed um, on parallel um, tracks. Um, they may not diverge that much, but ultimately we might be moving to a world where certain elements of decentralized finance and so on can um, can exist and actually have some tangible effects. Um, while Web3, you know, it's hard to imagine that it's going to remain viable in a way that it really connects with, uh, um, you know, the day-to-day -day realities of our lives. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
So you're a professor of trade policy. And when I look at a lot of these big trends, when I think about companies wanting to create a more diverse supply chain so they're not as reliant on China, when I look at sanctions, when I look at cryptocurrency, when I think about exogenous shocks that put into question your food supply or your energy supply, and I look at the U.S. in terms of the innovation, the market capitalization, um, our access to different trading partners, the fact that we're food effectively food independent, energy independent, and I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. I don't see I see a further consolidation of power or a leakage back uh, that the momentum that China has to the U.S., or put another way, just geopolitically, I feel very bullish on America's position in the world. But I'd like, to, I'd like you to respond to that thesis. I think the U.S. has one element that is going to be crucially important, which is soft power and financial power. Um, that provides the soft power, and we spoke about the importance of the U.S. dollar. Ultimately, what matters in uh, um, in the international um, sphere when it comes to economics, geopolitics, or finance is really trust. And um, the question is whether foreign investors, foreign actors more generally, are going to trust um, a country like um, uh, China. But having said that, I think um, the U.S. too. Um, has certainly lost some of the trust that it had um, because, you know, there was a period uh, not too far back when um, even traditional allies of the U.S. found that they could not count on the U.S. to um, to watch their backs. Um, so a lot of the world right now is trying to diversify itself in terms of um, economic and financial linkages, but also geopolitical linkages. That provides an opportunity for China, um, certainly, um, but people are going to perhaps move into Chinese financial markets, perhaps develop closer relations with China out of a sense that they need to diversify their relationships rather than they're really going to fundamentally shift away from the U.S. And the reality, I think, is that even though economic power and perhaps even military power has shifted somewhat towards China and other emerging market economies, financial power still remains very firmly ensconced um, in the West um, led by the U.S. And we've seen uh, that play out in the context of the Russia war and uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and um, the fallout of that. So uh, we might be seeing a bit of a fracture developing in the um, international economic and um, geopolitical system with the U.S. and other Western economies on one side and um, emerging markets and developing economies on the other side, with many countries trying to straddle the two. And after spending as much time looking at or examining China, it, as it relates to America, are they our competitor or our enemy? I think um, they view, and I, I too, uh, to some extent, view um, the economic relationship as not necessarily a zero-sum game, although it has certainly become um, a, a zero-sum game in the last uh, few years. Um, they are going to compete with us on some areas um, that the U.S. is very good at in terms of innovation, in terms of high technology and so on. And this is because they want to transform their economy um, to being a powerhouse in a very different way, not just a low-wage manufacturing powerhouse. Uh, but that's going to be a little difficult to achieve. Now, on the geopolitical front, it is a zero-sum game. And I think um, uh, one problem is that the geopolitics and the economics um, are becoming you know, inextricably linked so that we are competing in both areas. So I expect that in the next few years, we are 
going to see a ratchet of competition in practically every sphere between these two superpowers. So I can't resist. Bitcoin and Ethereum, are you bullish or bearish on these assets or <laughs> stores of value or payment protocols, whatever you want to call them? Bitcoin as a store of value, um, no. Ethereum as a, um, as a foundation uh, for a really exciting um, new financial ecosystem, very much so. And that ecosystem is that NFTs. Why are you bullish on Ethereum? Say more. I think the um, notion of building new financial products and services on decentralized uh, blockchains, um, including a variety of features like smart contracts that will allow for a broad range of financial transactions without needing um, trusted intermediaries, that sort of functionality is much more present on the Ethereum um, blockchain. Um, so NFTs, you know, might be um, uh, a passing fad in my view because it's not clear what exactly they um, represent in terms of intrinsic value but the ability to create new products like i said at scale in a way that you can even provide bespoke financial products and services to low-income households low net worth individuals and so on that has really tremendous potential in terms of democratizing finance and i think the ethereum blockchain has the sort of functionality to make that happen uh, last question, advice to your younger self or advice to a recent college grad who's interested in the fintech space. Should they go to business school? Should they go to work for the government, for the IMF? Should they go to work for one of these fintech startups? What would your advice be to somebody who says, I buy into what Ishwar is saying and I want to be at the center of it? Where would What advice would you give to a, uh, an emerging professional around where to go in this sector, how to learn? A little bit of each. I think it's really important at the beginning to get a good handle about the um, technical um, elements and the basics of um, how these things work. Um, but then ultimately, if you want to make a, um, a difference, I think being in the policy world and really get your um, nose to the grindstone in terms of making possibly small but important differences in the policy world is, uh, uh, is really crucial. But before you get there, I think understanding um, uh, and getting a firm grasp of the technical um, elements of any of the new technologies or whatever financial markets you're interested in, that is really crucial. So um, study a lot, get some work experience, and then move to the policy world and try to make a difference. Ishwar Prasad is the Talani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University, also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the New Century Chair in International Economics and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He was previously chief of the Financial Studies Division in the International Monetary Fund's or the IMF Research Department, and before that was the head of the IMF's China Division. Ishwar is also the author of several books, including his latest, The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Ishwar, thanks so much, Professor. I really enjoyed the conversation. Scott, that was really fun. Um, good luck with everything and uh, best wishes. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our associate producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you next week. A quick reminder before we sign off, my new book, Adrift, America in 100 Charts, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Uh, please pre-order it. Pre-ordering is super important in terms of building momentum. 
the team, we put a ton of work into this. I think you'll enjoy it. It's an attempt to sort of distill down the macro and microeconomic trends, societal trends uh, that make up the fabric that is America, including some suggestions on how we become more moored to each other, connected, um, and how this great American experiment continues to be the best experiment in the history of mankind. Anyways, uh, in sum, Daddy wants a bestseller. Pre-order now. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 